and be obedient to it. So we ask for grace this morning to do those things. We pray these things, Jesus, in your name. Amen. You may be seated. Well, have you ever been in a situation where someone is telling you a story, and then they say, guess what happened next? And you try to guess what happens, but you can't, and you can't quite predict uh, what the next events are. In fact, you know that it's kind of a setup, that when you're being asked this question, you have really no chance of guessing what happened next, because the whole idea of asking the question is to alert you to the fact that whatever happened next is so absurd, you're not actually going to be able to guess what happened. And this is how I kind of feel when it comes to this passage here this morning. Abram has just been called by God, and he's been giving this life-altering promise. In Genesis 12, 1 and 3, the Lord said to Abram, go from your land, your relatives, and your father's house to the land I will show you. I will make you into a great nation. I will bless you. I will make your name great, and you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and I will curse anyone who treats you with contempt. And all the peoples on earth will be blessed through you. This is a remarkable promise given that uh, to, out of every person in the entire world, God has chosen this man, Abram. This man who is an idol-worshiping man to become a great nation, to become a blessing to all other nations in the world, which on this side of history, we understand that that means salvation brought to all of mankind through the birth, death, and resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. But then there's this kind of guess what happens next question that comes about. In other words, what happens next is somewhat unpredictable. If you or I were writing the story or you or I were told to kind of guess what happens next, we would probably not predict the events that unfold. Yet though they are unpredictable or seemingly so, they are profitable for us as we uh, choose to walk in faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. And so as we continue in Genesis chapter 12, we come to a bit of an unexpected twist in the story of Abram. And there's four aspects to the story. First are problems. Problems arise in the life of Abram and Sarai. There are two problems. First is famine. Verse 10, there was a famine in the land, and so Abram went down to Egypt to stay there for a while because the famine in the land was severe. The only river that flowed year-round in Israel was the Jordan, yet it was completely below sea level. So Canaan relied heavily on rainfall for drinking water and for the irrigation of their crops. And so when there was no rain, there was a famine which is to say there's an extreme shortage of food, uh, putting people's lives in a threatening position of starvation. Now, famines were not necessarily uncommon in the history of the ancient Near East, but just because they weren't necessarily uncommon doesn't mean that they weren't serious or that they did not make life extremely challenging. In the Midwest here, it's not uncommon for us to have tornadoes, yet just because it's common to have tornadoes does not mean it does not alter the course of our life or that it's not serious. You think, a few years ago, back to the derecho, everyone remembers. Uh, that was a serious event. Though common for us to have high winds, it caused people's lives to turn upside down in many parts of the state. And so needless to say, Abram and his family is probably in a, a dire or urgent situation. He and his family's lives in some ways are being threatened. So what does Abram do? There's a severe famine, so he goes down to Egypt. This is what everyone did. Those in Canaan, especially in the Negev, they would regularly go down to Egypt because the Nile was there, and the Nile guaranteed that there was food. Uh, Egypt's Nile, and through irrigation, the Tigris-Euphrates Tiger, Valley provided this stable agricultural environment compared to Canaan, again, which was totally dependent on rainfall. And so Abram, he goes down to Egypt, and he goes down to Egypt to get away from the famine, not to stay there permanently, but to... Uh, to get through the famine to go back to the land of Canaan. 
And so Abram is going to Egypt. And as Abram goes to Egypt, another problem arises. And the second problem is this threat of death or perception of the threat of death. A threat of death from what, you might ask. Well, verse 11, when he was about to enter Egypt, he said to his wife, Sarai, look, I know what a beautiful woman you are. When the Egyptians see you, they will say, this is his wife, and they will kill me, but let you live. Abram looks at his wife, Sarai, and with all seriousness, he says to her, I know what a beautiful woman you are. Now, pro tip for any husbands in the room, this is a good thing to do to your wife from time to time, right? (laughs) Tell her, I know what a beautiful woman you are. Now, the next thing is not what you probably should do, but the first part is, and he says, they, with the Egyptians, when they see you, they are going to take you and kill me. Now, you may be thinking to yourself, you look at that at face value, you think that just seems really dumb. Like, who's actually going to do that? Like, Abram, is this like really a serious thing that might actually happen and come into your life? And the answer is yes, actually, I think it is. As I studied this week and tried to answer with that question, it seems like Abram had substantial reason to fear. The law of hospitality that's central in the Bible was not necessarily applied by the Egyptians. Abram is entering foreign territory. He's an immigrant into another land that doesn't have the same ideals or customs when it came to immigrants. And so it wasn't like Abram's going to Egypt and automatically being welcomed with open arms. And so Abram is bringing his family, he's bringing them down to Egypt to cross the Sinai Peninsula, and these thoughts are roaming through, running through Abram's mind. And what does Abram do? Well, this leads to aspect two, which is this plans. Problems arise and plans are devised. Abram devises plans. He concocts these ideas of what he should do, in particular as it relates to his wife Sarai and her beauty and the potential threat of him being killed. So what is the plan? Verse 13. Please say you are my sister. So it will go well for me because of you, and my life will be spared on your account. Now, you might be sitting here thinking, what in the world? Uh, how stupid can you be? Like, how selfish can you be, Abram? Uh, you want your, your wife to say she's your sister just so your life can be spared. And it seems a little bit self-centered of Abram to make this request of his wife, Sarai, unless you have some context or an understanding of what Abram is relying on or a custom he's playing off. And there's a custom here that Abram is looking to. There's a custom known as fratriarchy, or fratriarchy, which is what? Well, this is the idea. As one commentator on the Torah describes it, when there's no father, the brother assumes legal guardianship of his sister, particularly with respect to obligations and responsibilities in arranging marriage on her behalf. Therefore, if he's in Egypt and he goes to Egypt and men approach him and see uh, his wife and she says, actually, I am his sister, what happens is that these men then have to begin to negotiate with Abram as her brother. They have to negotiate with him. Now, why does that matter? Well, because it would give them time to have a plan to escape Egypt. Remember, they're not going to live in Egypt. They're going there until the famine subsides. And so this would give them time. And so he says to his wife, please just tell them you are my sister. In fact, we see this custom practiced in the Bible. One of those places is with Rebekah in Genesis 29. Remember, Abram is getting old. Abraham at this time is getting old. His son Isaac, he wants to find a wife for his son Isaac. He sends out his servant to his family to go find a wife for his son Isaac. He comes across Rebekah. What does Rebekah do? She goes back to her home and she brings with her her brother Laban. 
Why does she bring Laban? Because Laban, because her father was no longer alive, and Laban assumed guardianship over her, especially as it related to her being negotiated for marriage. And so Abram is in this same spot. This is what Abram is trying to do. He's trying to avert any men trying to come and take his wife, trying to keep anyone from taking her. And in one sense, it seems like a brilliant plan. Right? No one gets hurt. His wife's protected. He's protected. Maybe the feelings of some of these men get hurt, but that's, that's the extent of it. And besides this, it's only a half lie. Like, it's not entirely a lie. He's not asking his wife to completely lie because they actually are half-siblings. He is, she is his half-sister. Genesis 11, Genesis 20 uh, makes that pretty clear. And so if Abram was asked or she was asked, their conscience are eased because they're saying what is in sense, it is true. They are related to one another through blood. They are half-siblings. And so Abram's probably sitting here thinking, man, pat myself on the back, got this plan figured out, ready to go, congratulating himself, and especially after all, he's helping God, right? Because he's, he's the one who the promise is made to, and if he dies, I mean, the whole promise, it just kind of goes, goes away. It doesn't happen. And so he's thinking, got this all figured out. I'm a clever man. So what happens? Third aspect of the story, there are consequences to Abraham's ideas and plans. There are two primary consequences, far, one far more severe than the other. The first is this, is Sarai is taken when Abram enters Egypt, the Egyptians saw the woman was very beautiful. We want to learn one thing here about Abram, aside from the fact he's somewhat deceptive, is he's right about his wife's beauty. He was not flattering her. He was saying what, in fact, was true. It's confirmed by the testimony of the Egyptians. They look at Sarai and they say, she is beautiful. She's stunning. And as a result, what happens is Pharaoh's officials, they see her, and they go back to Pharaoh, and they praise her in front of Pharaoh. And then what this does is it gets Pharaoh's attention. And so as a result, what we find in verse 15, the woman, Sarai, was taken to Pharaoh's household. Now, uh-oh, what's going on here? Abram's plan this wasn't part of the plan. My wife wasn't supposed to get taken. I was supposed to be the one who they would negotiate with, and I could protect her from being taken from me, but then she's taken by Pharaoh. See, Pharaoh doesn't operate by, operate by the same set of rules. Pharaoh is the highest in the land. He is the king, and he, in one sense, does what he wants. The average Egyptian would have had to negotiate for his sister or for his wife, but not Pharaoh. And Abraham did not think, did not plan for the fact that maybe the beauty of Sarah would reach all the way to the king of Egypt. That was not in his mind factored or calculated into his thinking. And so his clever idea plan quickly turns into a serious problem. Sarah is taken from Abram, brought into Pharaoh's harem or household. Now, a question that comes up in this is what happens to Sarah? You know, it, it feels like she's taken, and therefore that means she must have slept with Pharaoh. She must have somehow been abused or victimized, and some scholars think that, but I don't think that's automatically the case. In fact, a very likely understanding is that Sarai is, uh, escapes undefiled. She's unharmed. Alan Ross, a commentary, explains this way. The words of Pharaoh don't need to be interpreted to mean that they had sexual contact. He simply stated that he took her for a wife. In a royal household, so in a, in a king's household, it would often take time for her to come before the monarch, before the king. Uh, an example of this is Esther. It took Esther 12 months before she ever came before the king. A long time. And so it wasn't like Sarah just got into the household and immediately went to Pharaoh. It probably took time where she's with the household of Pharaoh, all these other women being prepared to go before the king. In fact, 
At the end here of the story, when Sarah is returned to Abram, the Pharaoh says this. He says, here is your wife, which strongly suggests she was returned to Abram unharmed. Not to mention, they actually do this again in Genesis chapter 20. <laughs> I mean, you're like, you guys are crazy. But they play this game again with King Abimelech in chapter 20. And so if Sarah was actually harmed, I don't know that that would have been what would happen again. They would have kind of gone with that. Sarah's like, yeah, totally. Let's do this again. Let's see what happens. Not crystal clear, but I think safe to assume. Either way, though, Sarah's in a bad spot. I mean, it's not like, you know, like she's like happy about this, I would imagine. You know, she's separated from her husband. She's hurt. She's in a bad situation. It's all because of her husband, Abram. His good ideas turned bad. And at the same time that Sarah's in this abysmal situation, Abraham is experiencing prosperity, which is consequence number two. He, in verse 16, he treated Pharaoh, treated Abram well because of her. And what Abram is given, he's given flocks and herds, male and female donkeys, male female slaves and camels. Abram makes out on the deal here, on this situation. And we know that because of what he's in fact given. Two things in particular, female donkeys and camels. Female donkeys, much more controllable, much more dependable for riding. They're the rider or the, the rich person's choice vehicle to drive, so to speak. It's like you're going to drive the Lexus, the BMW, whatever if you have a choice. Not the 04 GMC Yukon that's rusting out there. My vehicle, for example. Um, <laughs> something nicer. Camels. Meaning plural, camels had just been introduced as domesticated animals. They were rare, and they were symbols of wealth. They, you didn't have a camel because it was functional at this time. You had a camel because it symbolized that you were wealthy. It's like you don't drive, have a Lamborghini for your drive-around everyday car. You have a Lamborghini to prove you have the ability to buy a Lamborghini. You're wealthy. It's a status. It's a symbol of status is what was going on. And again, I don't think Abram here, this is part of his plan. He's like, okay, let's go to Egypt. Let me sell my wife to get wealthy and then move back to Canaan. That, that's not what he's thinking. He thinks he has a legitimate plan to protect himself, his wife, his family. And what he finds is it backfires. And even though he's blessed with all these riches, his lovely wife is now spending frantic days, sleepless nights in the court of Pharaoh. And there's a problem, and they're stuck, and they don't know what to do. And this leads us to point four, or aspect four, intervention. Abram, Sarah, they find themselves in a desperate situation. I mean, what is Abram going to do? It's like he's not going to, you know, like Liam Neeson style, walk into, you know, whatever, and just kind of like karate chop everybody. He would die. There's no, nothing for him to do. And what Sarah, how is she going to escape? But then suddenly something happens. An intervention takes place. Verse 17, but the Lord. But the Lord. And if you're in this situation, this is a beautiful phrase. But the Lord. God steps in. But the Lord struck Pharaoh and his household with severe plagues because of Abram's wife, Sarai. That is the Yahweh, the covenant-keeping relational God. The God who had made promises to Abram. He intervenes and he inflicts these severe plagues on the household of Pharaoh. Now this phrase, severe plagues, the way that it's constructed in the Hebrew, it's to get our attention. It's to stress the severity of the plagues. 
It's to help us to understand that Pharaoh's household was overwhelmed by these plagues. It wasn't just kind of like this thing, like a, a gnat in the air that was kind of, you know, just bothering them. They were overwhelmed. Their life severely impacted, distracted, potentially pain, painful or in pain. Because these, this word plagues, it often referred to skin diseases. So possibly something like boils. Imagine having boils all over your body, extremely uncomfortable, painful. And this gets Pharaoh's attention. And so what does Pharaoh do? Well, he does two things. First, he questions Abram. So, so Pharaoh sent for Abram and said, what, or what have you done to me? Why didn't you tell me she was your wife? Why did you say she's my sister? So I, so I took her as my wife. Why, 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 why? And you would do the same thing, right? When something bad happens to you or you're, you're the recipient of some bad situation because of what somebody else has done, you're like, why? Why did you do that? Why did you not do that? Whatever it might be. Why is such a natural question that we ask? But yet there's another question that we might be asking, and that is the question, how? How did Pharaoh know that Sarai and Abram were actually husband and wife. Well, the text doesn't tell us, but I think there's a reasonable assumption or line of thinking that we can make, that we can assume as to how Pharaoh finds out. Now, why does God intervene? Well, he says that he intervenes because of Abram's wife, Sarai, because of her. Now, if God is intervening because of her, it's to protect her, to in part rescue her. So it would make sense to assume that she was not impacted by the plague. She did not, whatever, whatever everyone else in Pharaoh's household had, she did not have. Whatever skin disease or, or ailment or, or thing that they had, she did not have. Therefore, if that's the case, she would have stood out like a sore thumb. She would have stuck out. It's like, wait a minute, why are you not why don't you have boils all over your body when we do? What is going on here? And so naturally, they would just question her. And I think probably what happens is Sarai just tells them, okay, actually, he's my husband. The guy that you took me from, who you thought was my brother. I mean, he is my brother, but he's also my husband. <laughs> However that works, right? All right. We won't go down that road, but... And so Pharaoh finds out, and he brings Abram in, and it's like he like goes at him. And understandably so. I mean, like your, your life is just now thrown for a loop. Your whole household, not just one person, a bunch of people these plagues are affecting because of Abram. So Abram is standing before this unregenerated, unredeemed man, Pharaoh, does not believe in the God of the Bible, Yahweh, who created the heaven and earth, and he's being rebuked by this man. And you just imagine how, how Abram feels this moment. You know, when you, you realize that your plan or whatever you were doing, you got caught, and you're like, oh, I feel so stupid, so small, standing before this king. And so Pharaoh questions Abram, but then Secondly, he expels Abram. Now, here is your wife. Take her and go. Verse 20, then Pharaoh gave his men orders about him, and they sent him away with his wife and all that he had. 
here's your wife. Take her. Go. Pharaoh gives his men these orders. Just send them away. All the stuff that I gave you, you can have it. You can keep it. Take it with you. Take your wife and get out of here because you have brought cursing on us, not blessing. We want you gone. You notice Abram here, there's no response. He's just speechless and probably better so. It's like when you're in these types of situations, it's better to keep your mouth shut than to say something else and make matters worse. It's like, they're going to let you go? Just go. Get out of there. And so Abram leaves. And we'll pick the story up there next week. But in closing, what do we learn? What do we learn? Well, there's lots of things. You know, in my mind this week, I'm like racing. Like there's all kinds of things that we can learn from this story. I want to say, but there's just three things we're going to look at here to close our time together. The first is this, is our faith will be tested. We should expect our faith to be tested. Calling, calling is followed by testing. This is what we see with Abram. We see this throughout the Bible. Abram was just called by God, given the most wonderful calling, right? He's called to be a part of God's family. We know later he's called a friend of God, and he is the guy whom God is going to create this nation in which the Savior of the world will come through. And then shortly following that promise, that conversation, that calling, Abram is tested. His faith is tested. And how did God test the faith of Abram? Through trial, famine, the threat of death in Egypt, the threat of death through the famine. That God brought difficult situations into the life of Abram. And at these moments, he brought difficult situations into his life, and it would force Abram to decide, will I trust God or will I trust someone or something else? It's a test. Will I walk by faith? Will I trust God and do what he instructs me to do? Or will I rely on myself and be motivated by something else? Like fear or my flesh. And you think about both these situations. Or the situation in both of these trials. The famine and the possibility of his life being taken. They both have a great ability to produce anxiety, worry, and fear. I mean, try to get yourself into a place, into a mindset of where you have no food. Now, most of us have never been and probably will not be in that type of situation, but many people throughout the world have been and are. We're like, where is our next meal going to come from? You just see your supply of food going down, 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 and nothing coming back in. You're like, how are we going to survive? I mean, food is a basic necessity of life. It's not like how am I going to fix my phone? It's like that, you know, whatever. Feels like a necessity of life. A lot of times I'd rather just have it broken so it's not, but feels like it. But food is. And there's a sense of what happens when you don't have something that you know you need to survive. You're like, you begin to worry. You begin to be filled with fear and anxiety. Or that your life is being threatened by another group of people. And then even more so, what's happening is is your wife is then taken. And you're like, there's just this 
anxiety that will well up, and there's these situations that Abram finds himself in that are terrifying situations. And like Abram, we will have situations that come into our life. There will be circumstances that arise in our life that will produce uncertainty, that will produce anxiety, that will cause us to worry, to be afraid. And there's so many examples. Your health one day just takes a turn. I mean, how many times you hear situations, someone goes in the doctor and they come back feeling basically fine, they come back out with a diagnosis, a few weeks, a few months to live. Or money. I mean, right now as interest rates and things increase, you feel this sense, this tightening. You think things are getting more expensive, but income is not necessarily going up. How are we going to work this all out? Like more money's going out than more money's coming in. How am I going to deal with that? And you feel in these moments, you watch your bank account go down and not much more coming in. You think there's this sense of fear, anxiety. Or you look at your week ahead and you have all these things that you have to do and get through. And you begin to feel this overwhelming wave of anxiety come over your life, this fear. And at these moments when there are situations of fear, anxiety, we have to make a decision. Why walk by faith? Will I turn to and trust God, or will I just operate in my fear and worry? That our faith is going to be tested. That if you're a Christian, you've been called by God, called to be a part of his family, to faith in him, and that calling, that faith will be tested through trial. Because what God wants is he wants one to affirm, to help you see that your faith is genuine, but also to help you find yourself in a position where you need God, that you're dependent on God. The best thing for us to be is in a position where we see that we need and we actually depend on the Lord himself. Your faith will be tested, but there's something else that's important to understand. Number two, our lack of faith has consequences There's this tension here. There's this reality that when we don't function in faith, there are consequences. When we fail to live by faith, there are consequences. Look at Abram's situation. And you can make this, see this throughout the Bible, but in Abram's case, in neither of these situations do we find Abram turning to God, seeking God. And I think if he had, or if he did rather, we would have been told so. In part, I say that because we are told other times when Abram turns to God. Like next week, Genesis 13, Abram called on the name of the Lord. But in this instance, in this circumstance, there's no mention of Abram turning to God. God's not consulted, Abraham just does. He acts apart from God, apart from faith. Famine. It created this sense of fear, of starvation. He just moves to ally his action with his fear. Or the threat of death going to Egypt because of the beauty of his wife concocts this deceptive plan in order to, sur- to survive. He's just depending on himself, relying on himself, not looking to God, not seeking God, coming up with his own ideas that have major consequences. And you think about the promise given to Abram in this situation in the absence of faith. The promise given to Abram, it involves a place, land. It involves progeny or offspring, this great nation. And it involves this blessing. You will be a blessing to all these other nations. 
And you think about what happens in the absence of Abram's faith. One, he leaves the land that he was given by God. Two, his wife is taken into Pharaoh's house, putting the idea of him being a great nation at risk. How is Abram going to become a great nation without his wife? Which we understand that Sarai has a part of this. It's not just Abram and any woman. It's Abram and his wife Sarai who will become a great nation, who will have offspring and who will bless the world. Third, he's supposed to be a blessing to all the other nations of the world. But what do you find him doing to the nation of Egypt? He's a curse. It's like Pharaoh looks and be like, dude, you're the reason why my life is like miserable. And fourth, much further down the road of consequences is this, is that later Abram, again, we see him falter in his faith. We see him try to bring about the promise of the blessing on his own terms through the Egyptian slave Hagar, Sarai's slave. And she gives birth to a son named Ishmael. And where did Hagar come from? Well, more than likely, from this situation, when Abram, when Pharaoh gave all these riches, including slaves to Abram, and she gives birth to the son Ishmael, which propagates the line of Islam. And what do you have? You have two nations who have been at war ever since. The the consequences can be immense. And we don't get to choose what those may or may not be, but the reality is, is there are consequences if we choose not to live by faith and trust God. And we see this throughout the scriptures with many more men and women, but why? Why is it the case? Well, there's a number of ways to answer that question, but just one way to answer that question is in Romans 14, where Paul writes, everything that is not from faith is sin. See, what happens is when we don't step or live in faith, trusting in God and his promises, There's sin. And sin has consequences in some way, shape, or form. And we don't get to choose what that looks like or how long those consequences may last or when we might experience those consequences, but there are consequences. And what you see in Abram's life is his absence of faith, it exposes his own family. It exposes his wife to danger and harm. I've just been thinking about this week how particularly as moms and dads, husbands and wives, that one of the best things we can do for our children is to live by faith. That to not trust God will open up our family, expose our family to problems we may not otherwise experience. Just thinking this week that Lord, help us to be a people. Help us to be parents. Help us to be husbands, wives. Help us to be a people who actually live in faith, who trust you. That when even life gets hard, that we lean harder into you, depending on you. Lastly, number three, is we need to remember the promises of God. What do we need in order to walk by faith? Well, there's a number of things, ways to answer this, but we need to remember what God promises us. See, oftentimes what happens when we don't, walk by faith, it's because we are looking through lenses of our circumstances and our situation. And oftentimes what happens is that fear begins to build up and it takes over. That when uncertainty arises in our life, we can start to become afraid. That fear rises in us. And what happens when fear 
kind of takes over is that we tend to forget. We look at life through the lens of fear and we forget. We don't factor in God and his promises. And Abraham, he stumbles when testing comes because he forgot God. Not that he disowned God or no longer believed in God. He just forgot in that moment, in in those situations, he forgets who God is and what God has done, what God has promised him. And he operates in his flesh. He trusts in himself. He relies on his own understanding as opposed to God's understanding. That when we forget, we likewise, we stumble, we trip, we fail to trust God. And one of the keys to walking in faith is to remember what God promises. And one of the great promises of the Bible that we see even in this story is that God is faithful. God is faithful. He is faithful to keep his promises even when we fail to be faithful to him. Verse 17, but the Lord. What a life-giving statement. But the Lord. That Abraham is in despair. God knows what's going on. God knows why Abram is in the situation he's in. Not for one minute does God not happen to understand what's happening or not know what he's going to, do, going to do. And in exactly the right time, God intervenes and he steps in. He does what only he can do and he rescues and restores Abram and Sarai. He remains faithful to them, to the promise that he made to them. Now, maybe we would not anticipate uh, God doing it this way, but God's ways are higher than our ways and his thoughts higher than our thoughts. And, and God... God steps in. And even in Abram's stumbling and faltering, God is faithful to his promise to Abraham. And Abraham failed to trust God, but God did not fail Abram. And brothers and sisters, he will not fail you either. Even in our stumbling, God is committed. He is committed to those who are his. 1 Corinthians 1, 8 and 9, Paul says, he will also strengthen you to the end. Verse 9, God is faithful. God is faithful. He will strengthen you to the end. Or as Paul writes to the Philippians, I'm sure of this, that he who started a good work in you will carry it on to completion until the day of Christ Jesus. That he will carry it on to completion. The work that he started in you, this new life, he will carry it on. In verse 5 of Hebrews 13, I will never leave you or abandon you. See, as a Christian, there is an important truth is that you are in Christ and Christ is in you. You are in Christ and Christ is in you. And Christ who is in you and you who are in him, Jesus, he not only saves us, but he empowers us to live lives of faith. The very one whom Abraham's faith pointed to, the very one whom the promises are fulfilled in, this one, Jesus, enables us to live lives that are dependent on God, lives of faith. He is the beginning and end of our faith. And when trials come, we're not to resort to our own resources, turn to our own intellect or ideas, but we are to turn to Christ. Christ who will strengthen and sustain our faith and carry us to the completion of our faith. So as we live 
a life of faith, there will be stumbling, we will fall, but by God's grace, we will continue on until the day the Lord brings us home because he is faithful. He is committed to you and to me, to those of us who are in Christ, to give us grace to live lives of obedient faith in him. Let's pray. Father, we do thank you for